0: One of the greatest fears that people have is the fear of death. Benjamin Franklin said, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Uh, we would kind of wish that neither of them were true, but uh, that's a reality. Everyone dies. Everyone faces death. And for many people, death is something that is a very negative thing. That's a very sad thing. And uh, Greek philosophers who were writing during the time of uh, the letter to the first Corinthians and even before that, uh, you know, they had some very negative views of death. Let me read some of what uh, they wrote. Uh, Achilles, an ancient Greek playwriter wrote, of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Theocritus, the creator of ancient Greek poetry, wrote, hope for the living because the dead are without hope. Catallus, a Greek philosopher, wrote, suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief life goes down, must sleep an endless night. When it came to, to death, the, the Greeks really were without hope. Hope. And the reason that they didn't have hope is because they didn't believe that there was anything beyond death, that there was no life beyond, that there was no resurrection. <laughs> you know, there are many people in our culture today who view death in the same way the Greeks did, and because of that, it is something that they greatly fear. It's something that they have no hope in. In. If you've ever been to a funeral with people who haven't placed their trust in Jesus, who don't have the hope of heaven, and you're there with them, and the person who died was not someone who placed their trust in Jesus, you you really experience the hopelessness that people have when it comes to death. And you know this was one of the problems that some of the Corinthian believers had because in chapter 15, verse 12, Paul tells us. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And so there was this problem. There were believers there who were saying, you know what? There is no resurrection from the dead. People don't rise. There's no life after death. That was the belief and the concept. And, you know, that claim brings with it some of the problems that we just looked at. Then there's no hope. You know, if there's no life. If there's no, you know, life in heaven as there's nothing beyond this. There's no hope. But it also brings some very problematic things to the Christian faith because if you claim there's no resurrection, you deny two foundational truths in Christianity. You deny that Jesus rose from the dead and you deny that believers in Jesus will also rise from the dead. Well, last week we looked at the first 19 verses of chapter 15 where Paul builds this case for the fact that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. And he he shares with us three things to kind of prove his point and to help uh, encourage us with that truth. The first thing is that the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus proves that He is who He claimed to be God. It proves that He has the power to forgive us of our sins. It proves that He has conquered death, and all those things are an essential part of the gospel. Second Paul shared a great evidence that prove that Jesus is raised from the dead, he said there's over 500 people at once that saw him risen after he had been dead. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to use eyewitness testimony as my evidence to prove over 500 people at one time saw Jesus risen from the dead, which proves that he actually was. And then third, Paul shares with us six huge problems if you reject Jesus' resurrection. And basically with all these problems, he says, you know what? Christianity crumbles. If you deny the resurrection then everything that you believe in Christianity crumbles. You are your faith is empty, you are still sinners, bound for hell. You know, all that we believe crumbles if Jesus truly didn't rise from the dead and so he didn't conquer death and there's no hope for us when it comes to death. And so Paul leaves us with that reality. Of, if this didn't happen, here's the negative, but the wonderful truth is it did. Jesus did rise from the dead, and so we have hope. We have this glorious hope that he conquered sin, that he conquered death. But not only did Jesus conquer death, but now we have the hope that we too will be able to, and that there is life for us eternally in heaven with him. And that hope that believers have in Jesus, that because of his resurrection, we will be raised as well, is what Paul spends the rest of chapter 15 dealing with. So the beginning, it's all about proving Jesus' resurrection and the implications of that. And now he's going to focus on the importance of knowing why we can be confident that we too will be raised from the dead, how that's going to happen, what's that going to look like, and why we know no longer as believers in Jesus Christ who have placed our trust in him have to fear death. And so the verses we're going to look at this morning are full of hope, they're full of encouragement uh, for those who place their faith, place their trust in Jesus Christ. And so let's look at starting with why we can be confident that we will be raised just like Jesus was. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, says this. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So Paul starts off sharing this wonderful truth, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have, and notice what he says, fallen asleep. You know, something that's really interesting in Scripture, when the Bible speaks of the death of a believer, it doesn't refer to it as death, it refers to it as someone who is falling asleep. The emphasis is this rest, this peace, this comfort, which is very different than the the perspective of you know the world when it comes to death. Actually, interesting, early Christians began to call their burial places cemeteries, which actually means sleeping places, because they had this concept of when you die, it's like, falling asleep. It's like laying down for a nap, so to speak, and you wake up in heaven with Jesus. It's moving to a better place, not dying. But the Bible never describes the death of people who haven't put their trust in Jesus as sleep. It always refers to that as death because there's no rest. There's no comfort for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ because they will not be living with God in heaven. They will live without God in hell. And so Paul starts off saying that, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of those who have placed their trust in Jesus and who have died. Now, in order to understand what Paul is talking about here, we need to understand this reference of first fruits. You know, what is he speaking of when he says first fruits? Well, Paul is referring to the feast of first fruits that the Jews celebrated every year. And during this feast, you were required to take One sheaf or or one bundle of grain and then you would uh, bring it to the priest and and that one bundle of grain represented the rest of your harvest. And as you would come to the priest, you would offer that one bundle of grain and the priest would bless that. And as he blessed that one bundle that you brought, it was anticipating that the whole harvest was going to be blessed by God as well. And so the first fruits, you bring that one bundle to the priest, he blesses it. And it's this anticipation now that that thing represents the blessing upon the whole harvest as well. And so this is what Paul is referring to here. And so the first fruit is you know also an interesting thing because you have the Passover which is what we know represents the you know that's the day that Jesus the sacrificial lamb was given his life for us so on Passover Jesus died on the cross 3 days later you have the feast of first fruits uh, so it's interesting even within the timing of everything first fruits is exactly the day that Jesus rose from the dead so Paul is saying here that just like the first fruit offering assured that the rest of the harvest would be blessed Jesus' resurrection assures us who have placed our trust in him that we too will be raised when we die. And so it's an assurance to us of what's going to happen for us. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible that declares this. We see this throughout scripture that Jesus' death brings an assurance. It brings a promise to us concerning our death and resurrection as well. Let me read a couple passages that deal with that. Romans 6.5 says this, for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 2 Corinthians four fourteen. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus And will present us with you. All three of these verses are telling us the same wonderful truth. The fact that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead should give us a confidence and an assurance that when you and I die, who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, we too will be raised to go be with him in heaven for all eternity. And so Paul uses this illustration of Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits that points to the assurance that we too will have this wonderful resurrection as well. Now, the fact that we can be raised because of one man, Jesus's actions, really shouldn't surprise us because the fact that all of us die is because of one man's actions. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So when Paul says, for since by man came death, he's referring to Adam, the very first man that God created in the Garden of Eden, and Adam sinned. And because he sinned, you know, the consequence was death that was told to them. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. Adam sinned, and because of his sin, death came to all mankind. This is something that the Bible makes very clear in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, by Adam's sin, death came to us all. That's something that has happened, but yet there's something that's wonderful that Paul goes on to say in verse 21 But man, or by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So Adam's sin brought death to mankind, but Jesus' sinless life, the sinless life that he lived and then sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, Adam's sin brought us death. Jesus and his sinlessness brings us life eternally with him in heaven and for those who place their trust in him. But Paul says there's an order to this. But each one in his own order... Christ the first fruits, and afterwards those who are at his coming. So the order is, first Christ had to die, he had to give his life, and then be raised from the dead, and then after that, those who place their trust in God, uh, in Jesus and what he's done, they also, when they die, will have the same wonderful resurrection. Now some people say, well wait a second, Jesus wasn't the first one to die. I've read my Bible, I know in the Old Testament there's the widow's son in the days of Elijah He was raised from the dead, and the most famous one besides Jesus, Lazarus, he was raised from the dead. And they were raised before Jesus, so how could Jesus be the first if he wasn't the first one? Well, we need to understand there's a very big difference between those people and how they were raised versus Jesus and how he was raised. Really, with Lazarus and the widow's son, they were more resuscitated than they were raised, because what they had was the same body that they died in, they were given again, and then they died again. They were only raised to die again. Jesus is very different. He was raised and given a new body, and he will never die again. Uh, and that is what our hope is. We don't want the hope of Lazarus. We don't want, all right, Lord, when I die, raise me again so I can die a few years later. No, Lord, raise me again and give me a new body that I can live forever in. And that's what Jesus did. He's the first one to be raised and given a new glorified body to never die again. And the hope for us is that we too We'll have that when we die. And so he is the first one to be raised that way. Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor, said this about Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits. Men admire the man who was first to discover a new country. Oh, then sing it in songs, sound it with the voice of trumpet to the ends of the earth. Christ is the first who has returned from the jaws of death to tell of immortality and light. The fact that Jesus' resurrection assures us that we too have this hope that when we die, we'll be raised and go be with God in heaven if we placed our trust in him should be something that we shout out, something that we proclaim, something that we are so excited for. Well, now Paul is going to tell us that the resurrection of Jesus leads to the destruction of death. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he he says all things are put under his feet. It is evident that he who put all things under him is uh, accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him. Then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered death. And when we die because of what Jesus has done and we placed our trust in him, we will also conquer it. But something we need to understand is that death has not yet been destroyed. People still die. And so what Paul here reveals to us are some future events. He's speaking about the reign of Jesus, and he's referring to Revelation chapter 20, which speaks of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. He says, Jesus might reign till he puts all his enemies under his feet. And so during this thousand-year reign, Jesus is going to put all his enemies under his feet. And at the very end, the Bible tells us that there's still going to be a rebellion against Jesus, and he's going to wipe that rebellion out. And then right after that, he's going to judge the world on his great white throne. And so right after the thousand-year reign, death is the final thing, the final enemy that is destroyed. Because when Jesus stands, sits on his throne to judge He's going to judge and you are going to live forever. It's either going to be living forever with him in heaven or living forever without him in hell. He's going to judge everyone and only those who have placed their trust in Jesus will be in the book, the Lamb's book of life, and they will be able to be with him in heaven. And those who have not placed their trust in Jesus, books and books and books will be open of all the sinful things that they've ever done and they will be judged for that and they will be cast into hell for all eternity. Now Paul's going to give us three reasons why denying the resurrection is foolish. verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do if they are uh, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So here Paul gives three different reasons for why we should, you know, hold to the fact that people are raised from the dead. And the first one that he gives has brought some, you know, problems that people's like, what in the world are you talking about? What are you trying to say here? Because he says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? In the Corinthian culture in Paul's time, there was a pagan custom to baptize people for the dead. And so people who were still living would be baptized on behalf of those who were dead. Paul is not saying this is a good custom. Paul is not saying this is a biblical custom. Paul is not saying this is right to do. He's just referencing an example within the culture of even pagans believe that, you know these who are practicing this believe that there's something beyond uh, this life because they wouldn't be doing this if not, and so he's not approving of that, he's just using that uh, as an illustration. Uh, his second illustration is about his own life. He says in verse 30, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? Paul saying, hey, you know what, if there's no resurrection from the dead, Why have I placed my life in jeopardy so much? We went through the book of Acts. We saw all that Paul was willing to sacrifice, all the the torture and the imprisonment and difficulty he went to, but it was based on the resurrection. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the the foundation of it all. So if Jesus didn't rise, if there's no hope for anything beyond this life, he's saying, why would I live my life this way? Why would I be willing to go through all these things? I go through this because I do have the hope that there's more than just this life, that I am going to go and be with God forever and all eternity. And so he's kind of just using his own life as an example. If there's no resurrection, surely I wouldn't be living and sacrificing like I am if there's, this life is all there is and it just ends. And the third thing that Paul uses as an example is really the afterlife. He says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, If there's no resurrection, then guess what? There is no future heaven to look forward to, and there's no future hell to avoid if all it is is this life, we die and that's it, it's done, there's nothing more, then Paul just says, well, then you might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. You might as well just live it up here in this life if this is it. If there's nothing beyond this life, if you just live this life and you die and there's nothing more then just live it up here, you know, that's kind of the, the mindset. And that, sadly, is the mindset of many in the world today. Why? Because They don't believe there's a God. They don't believe that there is anything beyond this life. You know, it's like, well, you die and that's it. And so why not just live for this life? Why not just indulge yourself here? Because there's no one to judge me for my sin. There's no one I'm going to face. There's no life after this one that I have to be concerned about. And so many people have that mindset and you see that in the way in which they live life here. Now the reality that there is a resurrection, that there is a judgment, that there is a God we will stand before, that there is heaven and hell, that should drastically impact the way in which we live life here. But Paul is basically just using all of these illustrations to help them see, hey, there is something beyond this life. You will be raised. But now he kind of helps them see, well, where does this unbiblical belief come from? This denial of the resurrection, where is that stemming from? He tells us in verse 33 and 34, But do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Notice where this unbiblical thinking came from, this belief that there is no resurrection, that people aren't rise from the dead. Paul says evil company corrupts good habits. You know, what happened was the Corinthian believers were, were spending time with those who denied that there is a resurrection. Remember when that culture, that was a very common belief system. And he's saying the evil company, those who do not have biblical thinking are corrupting the way in which you think, and you are now not seeing the resurrection for what it is. You're starting to deny it, and I think this is a great warning for us because we have to be careful. We live in an evil culture, and they want to influence the way in which we think and the way in which we conduct ourselves, and and if we allow them to influence the way in which we think, we will start thinking their way, and we'll start living their way. We'll start believing these lies, and so Paul says, here's the remedy Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. Instead of surrounding yourself with these people who are telling you lies, with these evil people who are leading you astray, make sure you awake to righteousness. You personally make sure you get back to the Word of God and have the truth of the Word of God be the thing that guides your thoughts and guides your actions, but also surround yourself with people who believe in God's Word and will encourage you in those things and will help you with this. Well, next Paul is going to deal with what our resurrected bodies are going to look like, which is a question that so many have. Notice what he says, verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. So Paul starts off by saying this, there are those who say how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Those are the two big questions that were, you know, connected with the resurrection is well, you know, for people who are dead, how do they rise again? You're telling us that they're going to and, you know, with what body is that going to happen? Because they're thinking, and, and, you know, they're kind of decayed in the ground. And, and so they're trying to wonder, you know, how does this process work? I, I don't understand how that's going to happen. And so Paul gives a few analogies to help them understand how this process is going to take place. The first analogy is of a seed that has been sown in the ground. When you take a seed and you bury it in the ground, it grows into, if it's a wheat seed, it'll grow into a stalk of wheat But in order for that to happen, it actually dies. The seed disintegrates and, you know, is no longer there. And then, you know, the wheat stalk starts to grow out of the ground. When you bury a wheat seed, you don't get a a giant wheat seed that grows out of the ground. Something different comes up. It's a a stalk of wheat. So you put in a seed, and a seed doesn't come, a stalk of wheat. Something different comes. But how does that happen? Even today, they're just just like, you know, it's really kind of a, a miracle of what God does. He enables the seed to die and then, grow into this stock of wheat. Well, in the same ways, our bodies are like seeds which grow into resurrected bodies. When you take someone who believed in Jesus Christ, placed their trust in him, and you bury them, uh, you are sowing a seed which will come out of the earth ultimately as a resurrected body. A wheat seed does not produce another giant wheat seed, and just like our bodies that go in, we're not going to come up with the same ones. We're going to come up with something that is different and new. So how all this is going to happen? Because God enables our dead bodies to change into new glorified bodies. Well, since these questions were so important and big, Paul's going to give a few more analogies to help answer them. Notice what he says in verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So Paul says, hey, there are different types of flesh, different types of bodies. You have the human, you have, you know, animals, you have birds, you have fish, you know, we have these different bodies, but there's something even more different than all of those that are kind of made for the earth. He says there's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. The Greek word translated celestial means existing in heaven, and the Greek word translated terrestrial means existing on earth. And so Paul is saying there are earthly bodies like the ones that we have and birds and and animals all made to exist on this earth, but there are also bodies made to exist in heaven. And these bodies differ in glory, just like the sun, moon, and stars differ in glory. So Paul wants us to see, you know, the bodies that we have here on this earth are not going to be the same bodies that we have when we get raised. We're going to have new bodies that are different, bodies that aren't designed for the earth. They're designed for the heavens. They're they're much greater than our body here. And he's going to tell us some of the difference now of what makes the resurrected body greater than the earthly body that we possess right now. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. This body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Paul here gives us four contrasts between the natural body that we have and this body that we're going to get, our resurrected body. And I want you to note the four contrasts so we can kind of understand the differences. Our bodies now are corruptible. They don't last forever. You don't have to long re- live too long to realize that. you know each one of us are, are dying. our bodies are you know decaying, we're getting older. they weren't made to last forever. they're corruptible but our resurrected bodies will be different. They'll be incorruptible. They're not going to decay. they're going to continue and they're made to last for eternity. Our bodies now are full of dishonor. But our resurrected bodies will be full of glory because of this passage. This is one of the reasons why people refer to our resurrected bodies as our glorified bodies, because they're going to be so much more glory with those bodies than the ones that we have now. Our bodies now are full of weakness, but our resurrected bodies will be full of power. You know, for those of you, especially who are getting older in age, and you're feeling the weakness of your body, you're feeling the the frailty, you're feeling as you get out of bed, the the pain that this body has as it decays. hey, yeah, this body is full of weakness, but the resurrected body is going to be full of power. We're not going to have those weaknesses anymore. It's going to be great. Our bodies now are natural, but our resurrected bodies will be spiritual. And so you can see the Paul's making this case of, hey, the resurrected body is going to be so much greater than what we possess right now. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get mine. It's going to be exciting when that happens. Now, Paul's going to give us one more analogy to help answer these two questions. How are those who have died raised from the dead? And what kind of body do they have when they're raised? Verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So Paul gives an example of two different people, two different men with two different bodies. You have the first Adam, which is speaking of the Adam in the Garden of Eden, and you have the last Adam, which is speaking of Jesus, the sinless God in flesh. What Paul is saying here is that all of us are descendants of the Adam of the Garden, and we have gotten our natural physical body from him. He was made of dust and we have the result of that body, it's natural. But in the same way that we receive our natural body from Adam, we will also receive the spiritual body from Jesus. Just like Jesus was given this new spiritual body when he rose from the dead, that's what we have to look forward to. So those of us who place our trust in Jesus will receive this new spiritual heavenly body after we die. And so Paul says, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man referring to Jesus. So this is a promise that we can hold on to that, hey, you know what? You in your body now when you die are going to receive the wonderful resurrected body just like Jesus did. So Paul here is answering these two important questions. First, how are those who have died raised from the dead? They're raised from the dead through the power of God, just like Jesus was raised from the dead through the power of God. Just like when you place a seed in the ground and it dies, and then, you know, God uh, makes it grow and bring life from it. The second important question Paul answers is, what kind of body do they have when they're raised from the dead? Well, it's not a body that's terrestrial, an earthly body. It's a, a heavenly body. It's a different body. It's not made for this earth, it's made for heaven, it's incorruptible, it's full of glory, it's full of power, and it is spiritual. This is another reason why we can take comfort in death, because when this earthly body finally dies, we get an amazing resurrected body in its place. Well, now Paul's going to share, what's the ultimate reason why we need this? Well, why do you need this body? Well, that one probably is obvious to some. Verse fifty. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. The reason our resurrected body is so important is because we can't go to heaven without it. I mean, would you want to be in heaven with this body that's only going to last for you know, 80, 90 years? You need an incorruptible body. You need a body that is made to last forever. So you know the whole main point is you can't go to heaven with this body. You need one that God has designed to last forever. For eternity with him because that is the wonderful blessing that we have been given that we get to spend eternity with him well Paul also wants us to share a mystery there's a mystery about our earthly bodies and a mystery about these resurrected bodies that are going to come notice what he says in verses 51 through 53 behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul says, hey, I want to share with you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You know, this was the verse that was placed on the nursery room of the church that I was growing up in, that we shall not all sleep, but we should all be changed. And Uh, I think it's a funny verse because, you know, not all babies are sleeping and they need to have their diapers changed. But that is not what this passage is speaking about. It's not talking about babies needing to be changed. Remember, sleep is a way in which we refer to the death of believers. And so Paul is saying, hey, not all believers are going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Not every Christian, not every person who has placed their trust in Jesus is going to die. Paul's saying there's going to come a generation where Jesus comes back to the church or to, to take his church with him, to take those who trust in him. And those groups of people, that generation isn't going to die. And I believe it's very possible that we are living in that generation that Paul is talking about here, but there's going to be a generation where Jesus comes back, and those who are still alive who have placed their trust in Jesus, they are going to go and have their bodies change right then and be with Jesus, and we will not experience death if we are a part of that generation. And that's why Paul says we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And so this is going to happen basically instantaneously, as quickly as quick as you can blink. You know, we're going to go from being here to being with the Lord in heaven, and or in the, in the air more specifically, um, and our bodies will be changed from these earthly bodies to these new resurrected bodies that Paul has been uh, sharing about. Paul gives a description of this event that he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet in the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so here's kind of the description of it, of, you know, Jesus coming down with a shout, with his trumpet and boom, we will then be taken from here to meet him in the air. But as we see here in 1 Corinthians, it's going to happen in a blink of an eye quickly. There is an order, but since it happens in a blink of an eye, it's not really that important. But the order is those who have already died, they'll go first. And then those who are still alive will go right after them. But since it happens like that, it's kind of all at once. Uh, but Paul reveals that this is this great mystery. That there is going to be this generation that's actually not even going to experience death because Jesus is going to come back for a specific generation. Now Paul is going to reveal that our resurrection enables us to defeat death just like Jesus did. Verse 54. So when this corruptible puts on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying when we receive these resurrected bodies, these new bodies that are designed to live forever in heaven, then what is written will come to pass Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? When this body that is corruptible puts on incorruption, when this body that is mortal puts on immortality, guess what? Death no longer has a reign over us because we're never going to die. We're going to live forever with these bodies. And that's why it says death no longer has victory. Death no longer has its sting. It's kind of like um, a declawed cat or a defanged rattlesnake or a scorpion that no longer has its stinger. You know, what used to be able to cause a sting and pain, it no longer has the capacity to do it. Why? Because Jesus conquered death by rising from the dead. When a believer in Jesus dies, we go to heaven. Revelation 21 tells us some wonderful things about the difference between our earth and heaven. Verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This is just one little description of the difference of heaven versus here where there's so much tears and so much pain and so much sadness all because of sin and there's death. But guess what? Heaven, none of those things are going to exist and it's going to be just a wonderful, glorious place. And because of Jesus' death because of his resurrection and because we place our trust in him, we have the hope that that is something that is going to occur for us when we die. We're going to get to be with him in this wonderful place called heaven. Having victory over death is wonderful, but you know what? Paul tells us how it's possible. Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that anyone can have victory over death is because they place their trust in Jesus, who is the one who conquered it. You cannot have victory over death without trust in Jesus Christ, without trust in the fact that he is God, that he died on the cross for our sin, and that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. It is trust in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the way that we can conquer death, and it only comes through trusting him. Romans 6 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin has earned us death, both physical death and spiritual death, which is hell, a separation from God for eternity. We're all sinners. We all deserve the consequences of our sin, which is death and which is hell, but we can escape that. We can escape what we have earned if we accept. The free gift of God, which is eternal life that only comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It comes through accepting what Jesus has done for us. Receiving that free gift enables you and I to have eternal life with God in heaven. But rejecting that gift brings you to a place where you spend eternity without God in hell. So in this chapter, Paul has made a very strong argument that the resurrection of Christ is something that actually happened. And because of that truth, you and I can have confidence and assurance that we too will be raised from the dead when we die if we have placed our trust in Jesus. But he also wants to finish in the final verse because it's true. Because it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's true that when we die, we can go and be with God forever and eternity. If we believe in him, if we trust in him, he has a challenge for us. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Since you and I can be confident that this life isn't it, that death isn't the end, that you and I will one day stand before Jesus, that he is going to reward those who trust in him for the things that we've done in this life for him, that, that we will spend eternity with him in heaven. That reality should change the way in which we live here. Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable, be abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that death is defeated. We know that we have something more to look forward to than just this life, And we shouldn't just live for this life, but live for eternity. And Paul says that we can know that what we do for the Lord is not in vain. Because this isn't where it ends. There's more, and we're promised that what we do in this life for Jesus will be rewarded for eternity in heaven. And so what we do for the Lord in this life is never in vain. And sometimes maybe we think it's in vain and sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes the people that we're trying to reach don't receive the message and we think this is in vain. No, none of it's in vain. Nothing that you do in this life for Jesus is in vain. Now, a lot of things that we do in life are in vain because it's all about us and our pleasures and our you know, fulfillment and our desires, but anything that we do for God is not in vain. Jim Elliott was a missionary who tried to reach the Cachula Indians in Ecuador with the Gospel of Jesus, and that term was given to them because it means savage. This was a savage group of people, and you know, people warned Jim Elliot and the missionaries who were going with him, "Don't go." You know, this is a this is a rough group of people. You know, they could kill you. And his response to them was this: He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot understood it's not foolish to give up your earthly life to serve Jesus. It's not foolish to give up what you can't keep anyway. We're all gonna die to gain what you can't lose. The rewards that you're gonna have for living for Jesus here will never be taken from you. Jesus talks about where you store up treasures, either on earth or in heaven. He says all the treasures on earth can be destroyed, can be taken, but you know what? The treasures that you have in heaven because of what you've done for Jesus on this earth will never be destroyed, will never be taken. You'll have them for all eternity. Jamelia, recognized this. You're not a fool for giving up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. What is foolish is not being willing to give up your life here in service for Jesus, to just live for yourself. Jesus said it this way, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? What good is it to have everything this life has to offer and yet spend eternity separated from God in hell because you never placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries, they don't have an ending that you might think. They went to these savages. They tried to reach them with the gospel and they were murdered. They stabbed them to death. They killed them. But you know what? Jim Elliott gave his life and service of Jesus. He's a great example of being steadfast, and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. People think, oh, how in vain that was. He died. No, it wasn't in vain. Nothing that we do for Christ is in vain. His wife, after he's killed. Now imagine this, your husband has just been murdered by a group of people. She takes herself and her kids, and she goes to this Indian tribe, and she lives with them. And they're so blown away that she could forgive them after they murdered her husband and that she could love them after they murdered her husband that the whole tribe ends up accepting Christ and getting saved. And it's an amazing story of what God did, but it was not in vain. Nothing that we do for the Lord in this life is in vain. Jim Elliot trusted in Jesus. Death did not have victory over him because now he is with Jesus in heaven and he's being rewarded for his sacrifice for Jesus. Paul wants us to have the hope that because Jesus died for our sins, because Jesus was raised from the dead, because Jesus was given this wonderful new heavenly body, that we too who have placed our trust in who Jesus is and what he has done and the truth of the resurrection can also have the hope that we, when we die, will be given these new glorified bodies and get to live forever in heaven with God. Can I have the worship team come on up? We're going to finish this morning taking some time to remember the reason why we don't have to fear death. The reason why we have this wonderful thing to look forward to in these new resurrected bodies. And that is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. It's only because he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. He took our sin. He took the consequences of our sin upon himself. But three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and to conquer death. And so this morning, as we do the first Sunday of every month, we're just going to take some time to take communion together. And it's a time to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so this is an open communion, meaning if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you have trusted that He is God, you have trusted that it is only through Him and belief in Him that you are saved, you believe that He died on the cross for your sin, you believe He rose from the dead, then we encourage you partake of communion with us. If you have never placed your interest in Jesus, then we just encourage you to just let the communion elements pass. Uh, That's not something for you to partake of. Uh, And we're just going to hold on to that together. And uh, once everybody gets it, the worship team is going to be singing a worship song as they're passed out. Just hold on to them and we will receive communion together. But I just want to read something that we have in a few chapters earlier in verse 11. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death till he comes so let's just take some time to reflect upon what Jesus has done If there is unconfessed sin in your life, I encourage you to confess that to the Lord before you partake of communion, and we're going to go ahead and do that together.